The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me this morning as we read the 22nd Psalm, reading verses 14 through 21. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shred, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing... They cast lots. But you, O Lord, don't be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And all God's people said, Pray with me. Father God, it is impossible for us to fully express the sense of thanksgiving we have as we gather in this place this morning staring down another year. Father, we look backwards at all that you have done and you have been so very good. You have been merciful, you have been gracious. You have provided for every last need. Father, we know that you've done it all on account of your son. So we thank you most of all for him. And Father, while we don't know what the next 12 months will hold, we trust that you have got a good and perfect plan in them. And Father, we know that we have no hope whatsoever if we seek to do this in our own power, in our own wisdom, in our own abilities. So Father, we thank you for this word that we've come to sit under this morning. We trust that you will strengthen us by it. We thank you for this people that you have gathered, that you call the church. We know that you will use members all throughout this room and those that have not made it in yet today. We know that you will use us in ways we couldn't imagine to lighten our loads, to encourage us, to exhort us, to comfort us, to weep with us. 
These are all gifts from you and we praise you for them. We thank you for them. Now, Father, we seek to bring you glory in the way we handle this word now. So we ask that you would sharpen our minds, that you would direct our affections. Father, we ask that you would help us to hear rightly this word that we're about to receive, that you would plant it deeply within our souls, and that you would change us by it. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So in my mind, this section of Mark 15, verses 21 through 32, it divides naturally into three parts. The first section, the section that we studied last week, that's just verses 21 and 22. They tell us just a little bit about this brief journey that Jesus took from the governor's headquarters to the place of the crucifixion. The portion that we seek to study this morning, verses 23 to 27, they seem to set the stage. They show us everything that happens once Jesus arrives at Golgotha and then gives us the details surrounding the crucifixion. And then the portion that God willing we will study next week, verse 29 through 32. It almost appears as though John Mark pulls back and pans the audience. He just moves from group to group and shows us how those that witnessed Jesus' crucifixion in real time responded to what they saw. And so my hope for this morning, and frankly, this is my hope for every single morning when we gather in this place, my hope for this morning is that we would slow down a little bit, that we would slow down and study these words, that we would take this incredibly familiar portion of Scripture, and we would ask ourselves, what are we actually looking at? What is Mark telling us? What was his intention in writing these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Now, I know that that sounds obvious, but you must know that whenever we come to a portion of Scripture that we find ourselves familiar with, a portion like this that we've read many times, it's easy to rush through this thing and assume that we have it mastered. It's easy to become lazy and immediately jump to the application or to discussing how this text makes us feel instead of doing the necessary work of actually studying what is here. God, what have you actually said in these words? If we don't do that, then unintentionally what we can find ourselves doing is reading our own thoughts into the text instead of allowing this text to inform our thoughts. And as a result, we completely miss the cross of Jesus Christ. We miss out on everything that God has intended for us to see. And so, in the words of Daniel Fuller, we must first recognize, before we can recognize what this text means, we must first understand what it meant. What did Mark mean when he wrote these words? What was the context in which he wrote them? And how would they be received by the first century audience that first came to them? It's only then that we can ask the next question, so what? What are we intended to do with this? What is the proper response to this? How are these words intended to affect my life? Now, if we get this process backwards, we not only dishonor God by mishandling his words, but again, I say we threaten to completely miss the cross of Jesus Christ. Unless you think I'm being overdramatic, I would draw your remembrance back to the Jewish women that we met last week. They did not understand what they were looking at. Despite all of Jesus' public teaching, because of their own thoughts, because of their own traditions, 
even because of their own emotions, they were not able to rightly think about who Jesus was and what he was doing. Now, they were moved emotionally. We read in Mark 23 that they were mourning and lamenting for Jesus. Now, some commentators have wondered if perhaps these weren't professional mourners. It was quite common in the ancient Near East for people to get paid. They would be paid by a family of someone who was suffering, whether they were already dead or were dying. They would receive money so that they could walk behind or go to the house of this person and they could wail as loudly as possible. This seemed in that part of the world to those people as a proper expression of the grief that the family felt. And it felt like a way that you could appropriately express the honor for the person that was suffering. Now, I suppose that could be what we're seeing here. But I don't think it is. Because I can't help but think of all the ways that Jesus has interacted with the women all throughout Israel. Think back to all of his earthly ministry. Perhaps more than any other man that we see living in this place at this time, Jesus had incredible love and compassion for women and children. He valued them. He cared for them. He saw into their soul and he ministered to them at their greatest point of need. So it seems to me that these women were truly sorrowful. They were mourning the loss of a righteous man. They were mourning the loss of one who had healed them and their children, one who had cast demons out of those that were oppressed. They were mourning the loss of this one that they thought was going to be the Messiah that they had longed for. They saw all their hopes for him coming crumbling down in this moment. But whatever drove this expression of emotion, we know what Jesus' response to the women was. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, weep for yourself and for your children. Jesus then goes on to explain the horrors that await the people of Jerusalem, this once holy city. These very same Romans to whom Jesus has been handed, they would come marching in. They would siege the city. They would destroy the temple, not one stone left standing upon another. Many of these women would starve to death. Many of their children would starve to death. More than a million people would be killed on this day. It was far worse than they could ever imagine because even above and beyond this, we know that the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, this was just a picture of God's wrath, his eternal and infinite wrath that awaits those that refuse faith and repentance and trust in Jesus Christ once they arrive in hell. But because these women could not rightly understand what they were seeing, because they couldn't see back past their own emotions, their own traditions, their own expectations. They completely missed who Jesus was. What they saw in him was just a victim to be pitied. They had no understanding that this was the son of God to be worshiped. So please understand, these women were not opposed to Jesus. These were not the ones that were mocking his pain. They didn't strike him. They didn't spit in his face. At worst, they were dutifully weeping for him. At best, they were moved by emotion at his suffering and their own loss. But because they did not see Jesus through spiritual eyes of faith, because they did not recognize that what was happening in the coming of Jesus and in the crucifixion that he marched towards was all that God had promised to their forefathers, that this was the way that salvation came, because they did not recognize that all that he purchased on the cross could not be attained by them unless they came to him in true, repentant, saving faith, they would not enter into his kingdom. Dear friends, their inability to recognize Jesus and the purpose behind the cross would cost them everything. So lest any of us be found like these women, lest we be caught up in empty emotionalism, lest we be caught up in some well-meaning but superficial understanding of the cross, we're going to slow down. More than that, we're going to pray. 
we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to help us to see what these words mean. And then God willing, next week, we'll come back to this text and we'll examine, we will survey the response of those who were there in that day, at that time, and we will ask how our response to this cross corresponds to theirs. So with that, I ask you to return to your feet, please. In the reverence to the reading of God's word, we return to the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel. We begin in the 21st verse. I remind you as always, this is the word of God. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry the cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments amongst them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one at his right and one at his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from that cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. These who were crucified with him also reviled him. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father, each man brings his own thoughts, his own experiences, his own emotions, his own traditions to your word. What we ask for you to do this morning, Father, is to help us see what you have written, to see the picture that you have given us, because we know that only those are the words of hope and joy and life. So, Father, we're asking you to work through your spirit in us now. Help us to rightly hear and receive and believe these words. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as you will very likely recall, Jesus has been accused and tried and condemned under the charge of blasphemy because Jesus made clear that he is the Son of God. After that, the Jewish Supreme Court, that is the Sanhedrin, they took Jesus and they delivered him over to the Roman governor of the area of Judea, a man called Pilate. It was there that they portrayed Jesus as an insurrectionist. They accused him of misleading the people of Israel in rebellion against Rome. They said that he refused the people to pay taxes to Caesar, that he tried to lead a rebellion. Now, Pilate knew that these men were acting out of envy. He knew that Jesus had done nothing deserving of death. As a matter of fact, we know that Pilate's wife sent word to him and told him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. But the Sanhedrin during this time, they had convinced the crowd to join them in their calls for Jesus' death. They kept pushing, crucify, crucify him. So Pilate knew that something had to happen. Otherwise, there would be an uprising and Rome would not stand for such a thing. And so seeking to appease the mob, what Pilate thought was that I will just flog Jesus. I will punish Jesus and then have him released. But this Jewish mob, they would not be mollified. They continued to cry out, crucify him. This man makes himself a king. Anyone who would call himself a king is no friend of Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Therefore, we say to you, crucify him. Pilate knew that he was in trouble. As best he could tell, there were two very clear choices before him. He could crucify this innocent man, or he could set him free 
and possibly lose his own life at the hand of Caesar. And so driven by fear and selfishness and pragmatism, Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. Now by the time Jesus was led away from the praetorium, he had already suffered great abuse. He was punched and spit upon by the Jewish leaders. He was scourged by the Romans. And then he was received by the full battalion. Perhaps as many as 600 Roman soldiers, they received Jesus. They stripped him of his clothes. They put upon his back a purple robe. They wove together a crown of thorns, placed that down upon his head. They put a reed in his hand like a mock scepter. And then they struck him. They too spit in his face. But undergirding all of this, both from the Jewish people and the Roman soldiers, undergirding all of this was humiliation and mockery. They bent their knee in fake homage. They cried out, Hail, the King of the Jews. You see, they were not just content with beating Jesus' body. They had to utterly humiliate him. But now it's time to get this crucifixion over with. So they would put Jesus' own clothing back on him. We don't know whether they removed the crown of thorns or not. But at this point, they began to lead him out. They took the cross and placed it upon Jesus' back. We don't know if this was the entire cross. That seems probably unlikely because a full cross would have been as much as four or 500 pounds, but probably at least the, the cross beam, something that weighed maybe the range of 80 to 120 pounds. And Jesus was sent to carry this out to the place of the skull. There's a place called Golgotha. Now the trip wasn't long, but Jesus was exhausted from a night full of prayer and from the blood loss and the beating and just the sorrow of a night filled with prayer. Jesus was utterly exhausted. And so the soldiers pressed a man into service. They grabbed a man called Simon. Simon was from North Africa, a place called Cyrene in modern day Libya. It seems as though this man called Simon, he was just making way into Jerusalem, perhaps just to come and observe the Passover. He was there minding his own business along with his sons, Alexander and Rufus. So one moment this man is going about his ordinary, everyday activities, and in the next moment, he is there with Jesus Christ, carrying his cross, the ultimate picture of suffering and death and shame. As I told you last week, it is my belief that as difficult as this moment was, it would turn out to be the greatest moment in the life of Simon. As best we can tell, based on a greeting from the Apostle Paul at the end of Romans 16, as best we can tell based on the fact that Mark does not normally name a man unless he is a well-known public figure or he is a man that is meant to be known in the early church, it seems very obvious that this encounter with Jesus Christ led to the salvation of not only Simon, but his sons and his wife as well. As I told you last week, we know that there was a great church in that area of Cyrene, and that even from that church were sent men that went and one day would be charged with sending out both Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. We see the effects that this encounter, this unexpected encounter would have on this man, that unlike these women, Unlike these Jewish women that went out intentionally to mourn Jesus as he marched to the cross, this unexpected encounter would yield incredible fruit, the salvation of not only this man, but the entirety of his family. And no sooner had Simon met Jesus than he was pressed into service. We find God using this ordinary man to make sure that his son makes it to the, to the place of the crucifixion before his body gives out. So I told you last week that we're not entirely sure where Golgotha is. There's a couple of likely places, but the one that seems most likely, it's a place just north of the temple complex, just north of the praetorium, just outside the city gates, this place that now holds this 
most gaudy church you've ever seen. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Seems very likely that this was the place where Jesus was crucified. Now, what we do know for certain, based on the words of Hebrews 13, is that Jesus was, in fact, crucified outside the city gates. We read this. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That Jesus, just like the carcass of the burnt offerings, just like the scapegoat, that Jesus would be taken outside of the city, that there he would truly bear our sin, that there he would truly become a curse for us, that he would be led away from the city where God's people dwelled. He would be led away from the temple where God's spirit was most fully known. He would be led away from that place and out into the wilderness, and there he would bear our curse, cut off from the land of the living, bearing the full weight that our sin deserves. And then we come to these new verses this morning. And they offered Jesus wine mixed with, work, with, mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So I think the first question that we ask ourselves is, who is they? Who are the they that offered Jesus this wine mixed with myrrh? Now, there may be some help found for us in some words of wisdom in the Old Testament. We read in Proverbs 31, 6 through 7, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. So there are some who believe that the they here was the Jewish women that they came and offered this wine mixed with myrrh as a comfort. They were trying to ease Jesus' misery and distress. That perhaps these were those very same women that were mourning, that were weeping for Jesus before, that they had now come to his aid. Now we read that this wine, it was mixed with myrrh, and now you know what myrrh is. It's the sap from a certain tree. It can be made into an oil or a fragrance. It can be used to embalm bodies. You remember that when the wise men came to visit Jesus in Bethlehem, they came bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh there's a foreshadowing of his death you'll see the conclusion of this picture once Jesus is dead this man called Joseph of Arimathea he would go to Pilate and ask that he could have possession of Jesus body but then Nicodemus the Pharisee who had met with Jesus at night he would come with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes they would wrap it along with Jesus body and claws and there they would bury him but at this moment this was not meant to be an embalming agent this myrrh mixed with wine, it was meant to be a narcotic. Whenever it's consumed like this, this wine mixed with myrrh, it acts like a sedative to deaden Jesus' sensitivity to the pain of the cross. So because of this, some believe that these women took this strong drink, this wine mixed with myrrh, they gave it to Jesus just to take the edge off, just to lessen the pain that he was going through. Now this may be true, but the only problem I see is that Mark never mentions the women. You see, it's in Luke's gospel that we read about these women along the way. If we read through Matthew and Mark, we constantly see all our attentions drawn either to Jesus or to the soldiers. We read that it is they who mocked Jesus in the courtyard. It is they who led Jesus to be crucified. It is they who compelled Simon to carry Jesus' cross. It was they who brought Jesus to Golgotha. It was they who offered him wine mixed with myrrh. It seems like these were the soldiers, but why? Why would these soldiers offer a condemned man Why would these soldiers offer Jesus a painkiller? Well, historians tell us, and this seems quite reasonable to me, that they would offer this as a way of making sure that this condemned man didn't fight. As we will discuss soon, crucifixion is brutal business, and a man cannot help but to fight with everything in him to resist it. You've seen videos like this before, when policemen are trying to subdue a crazed and desperate man just to get him into handcuffs. The man fights with everything he has, and it doesn't matter at times whether there's two or three men. It isn't a matter of sheer strength. It isn't a matter of technique. It isn't a matter of numbers. 
It's just the difficulty of holding a grown man still and getting him to comply. Now, for these soldiers that were going to nail Jesus to the cross, even though they weren't bound by the same ethics and the same rules as modern-day police officers, it would have still been a difficult task. And so it makes sense that in order to take the edge off, in order to take the fight out of the prisoner, you would give him something to deaden him a bit, something to calm him down and make sure that the execution goes smoothly. That seems to be exactly what's happening. But whatever the case, whether this wine mixed with myrrh, whether this was offered as an act of compassion from Jewish people, whether it was acted to bring about, whether it was given to bring about compliance by the Roman soldiers, either way, Matthew tells us that Jesus tasted the drink and he would not receive it. Matthew also tells us that the wine was mixed with gall. Now the Greek word for gall there is kole, and, and it, oftentimes throughout the scriptures, it's used just to refer, to refer to something that's poisonous or bitter. This seems to fulfill the words of Psalm 69, 21. They gave me poison for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So whether this was some additional substance that had been added to the wine, whether this was a separate cup of wine, or whether this was merely a way of expressing the taste of the myrrh mixed with the wine, either way, Jesus immediately knew what it was. Upon tasting it, the bitterness gave it away. He tasted it, and he immediately knew this is a thing that will deaden my senses. This is a thing meant to take the edge off, and so he refused to drink. Now, it wasn't that Jesus refused to drink because he didn't want to drink anything while he was on the cross. It wasn't because he, that he refused it because he didn't want to take any wine upon the cross. In fact, what we know based on John's gospel is that this thing, as it came to an end, as we come to the point where it is finished, that Jesus would cry out, I thirst. And at that point, they would take a sponge and dip it in some sour wine vinegar. They would put that on a reed and then they would hold it up to Jesus' mouth and he would drink it. He would receive that. The issue here is that he did not want to take this concoction because he did not want to have his senses dulled. He was going to face this moment completely unaided. Every last ounce of pain, every moment of excruciating agony, Jesus would face it with sober-minded, undiluted consciousness. I have to think that there are two critical yet equal reasons for this. Number one, there was far too much at stake. Jesus could not afford, nor could we afford for Jesus to have his senses dulled. He was going to go to Calvary and he was going to purchase our salvation. He was going to bear our sins. He was going to drink down his father's wrath and this would require as much strength and focus as Jesus could muster. Not to resist the soldiers, but to make sure that he didn't pull away. You see, oftentimes in theological circles, we'll talk about Jesus' obedience on two terms. We'll talk about his passive obedience and we'll talk about his active obedience. We talk about his obedience to the law, his obedience in carrying out the, in, in observing the Sabbath, or his, his obedience in uh, observing the feast. We talk about this often as Jesus' active obedience. But then when it comes to something like the passion, we'll often talk about this as his passive obedience, that no, Jesus didn't resist, but this was something that was happening to him. But I, I don't know that in this instance, those two category, categories are so clearly defined. Jesus was laying down his life. No one took it from him. Jesus was laying down his life and it was he that would take it back up. He had to be absolutely alert for this. He could not pull away. He could not pull up short. He had to be completely engaged both mind and body in everything that happened at Golgotha and everything that he had marched to that place to accomplish. So he would be both physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually alert and in tune and in step with everything that happened in the merciless hours that lay ahead. Now closely tied to this, 
perhaps even more critical than this, I suppose, is that Jesus had not come to suffer some pared-down version of death. He would taste the very worst that this great enemy. He would taste the very worst that this wage of sin comes to offer. He would rise victoriously, having taken the full force of violent death upon himself. So if he was going to press on, if he was going to finish this race that his father had set before him, he would do it completely unaided by any earthly comforts. And dear friends, you must know that this is nothing new. Think with me now. At no point in Jesus' earthly life did he take the easy path. At no point in Jesus' earthly life did he use his divine prerogative to dull the sense of humanity, to dull the experience of humanity. Think back to Jesus' temptation. Think back to that time when he was led out into the wilderness. This is a critical moment, right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's been baptized. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. His father affirms his love for his son. And then led by the Spirit, he is taken out into the wilderness. At this moment, this is the whole ball game. He's going to be tempted by Satan himself. Why would you suffer and die for sinful people? Why won't you use your powers to make this life easier? Or even better than that, why don't you just bow your knee to me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth and their glory? In short, Satan was promising Jesus exaltation without the suffering. If the Lord failed here, everything else crumbles. The Lord fails here, there is no salvation for us. And what do we find? We find Jesus like Adam. Was he given a helpmate like Eve? Was he, in a lush, was he in a lush garden with flowing rivers? Did he have a belly full of food from the trees in the garden? No, quite the opposite. He was alone in a barren desert, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. But what Jesus did have was the word of God. To every accusation, to every temptation, Jesus would respond, it is written, it is written, it is written. This word that Jesus had memorized as a boy, this word that he would teach in the synagogues, this would sustain Jesus in his deepest and darkest hours. More than earthly comforts, more than any of the comforts that this world has to offer, this man filled with the Spirit, he would be strengthened by the word of God, the bread which brings true and lasting life. This was the only thing that could help him in these moments. So it should be no surprise then as we fast forward to the cross that we see him rejecting anything that might cause him to place his hope in anything other than the word of God. Anything that threatened to distract him, anything that threatened to cause him to find hope or peace or joy or satisfaction in anywhere other than the word, he rejected it. Now we don't hear any great discourse between Jesus and Satan there upon the cross, but you have to know that the temptation uh, carried on. It can't be lost on you in the words of the passers-by as they mocked Jesus. Doesn't this sound like Satan? If you are the Christ of God, then come down from that cross and save yourself, and then we will believe. And while we do not hear Jesus quoting huge chunks of Scripture while there upon the cross, just portions of Psalm 22, we know that the word was rushing through his mind and his heart. We know that it was the word that sustained him that more than earthly comforts, more than food or drug or companionship, more than anything that this, the temporary gifts of this world can bring, more than the temporary relief and ease of suffering that they can bring, Jesus knew that he had come to do the will of the Father. 
He had come to glorify the Father. And those things would be of no help in this moment. It was only the word. And so he feasted on the word of God in his deepest and his darkest and his most misery-laden hours. You know what I'm going to say next, don't you? Because I've got to say it. Do you live like that? Listen, I'm not saying that you must face every one of your trials in the middle of a 40-day fast. And I don't reject the modern drugs that God has given us that allow us to face surgery and catastrophic injury with, without having to feel the full force, the full weight of the pain that those things bring. But I tell you that when we look to Jesus Christ, I warn you often that when we look to Jesus Christ, we don't just see there an example is more than an example but he is also an example over and over and over again in scripture we hear Jesus saying things like I give you an example we hear men saying things like be imitators of me as I imitate Christ we see words like if you would say that you walk with Jesus then you must walk as he walked so as we look to Jesus in the fullness of his humanity Tempted and tried, all while refusing to cheat, refusing to exercise his divine rights to avoid the true trials of human life, we must ask ourselves, do we walk like this? Do we live as Jesus lived? And what I see in Jesus is not a man that's trying to make endurance any harder than it's supposed to be. What I see is a man refusing to pull back from suffering and pain that he could accomplish his father's will. He refuses to shrink back in these darkest hours and he proclaims to us, You are here for one purpose, and that is to glorify my Father. And these other things, they may help you in these moments, these earthly comforts. You can receive them as acts of worship. As a child of God, you can enjoy them to his glory. You get them with thanksgiving, but these are lesser things. If you would follow me, if you would suffer well to the glory of God, if you would make certain that you endure to the very end, it is this word you must hold all those things in their proper place and you must hold this word at the center the all-sufficient inerrant infallible word of God who has made you and sustained you and loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine I can't stress this enough if you're allowing yourself to seek hope and relief, and joy, and anything other than this word. All it's going to take is for the days to get deep and dark enough, and you will find out how inadequate they are. They will not carry you through to the end. Listen, I'm I'm not talking about these things like they're bad. I'm not talking about getting drunk or high. I'm, I'm not talking about explicitly sinful things. Again, I'm talking about good gifts from God. And they can take the edge off. You're talking to a man that my wife knows when I've had a bad day because she finds all the junk food trash in the drawer. I try to take the edge off with donuts. How's that for insanity? I'm not saying that these are explicitly bad things. I'm not telling you that I get this perfect. But I'm telling you that they're nothing more than a temporary reprieve. They may lessen the pain for a moment. They may give the illusion that they will satisfy. 
but they will not endure to the end. And worse than this, they will distract you from the thing that will. Because God may have sent this pain in your life to drive you deeper into his word, to call you deeper into communion with him, to call you deeper into dependence upon his body. And if we're constantly dulling our senses with the things that this world tells us to chase after, then we miss his word. We miss the opportunity. We miss what he has called us to. So as a people that live to magnify the name of God, this is it. This is it. So we commit today while things aren't bad. Listen, some of you, things are bad. Some of you are in the middle of your deepest and darkest days. But for the majority of you, probably not. There's some level of suffering in your life, but it has been worse and it will be worse. But in these moments right now, before the deepest and darkest days come, we must commit now that this word will be the thing. That this word will be the center of our life. And so we must preach it to ourselves. We must preach it to each other constantly. Because when my dark day comes, I'm going to want the donuts. Andrew, you got to look at me and say, you said the word was enough. Now live like it. We preach it to ourselves and we preach it to each other. The word is enough. And then guided by the spirit of God, in obedience to his word, we allow him to show us which of those good gifts are in bounds. Again, to a man laid up on a, on a gurney, morphine might be good. It might be helpful. It might be a gift from God. We've got to determine which things are in bounds and which things threaten to lead us away from him. Verse 24, and they crucified him. <laughs> okay. Church, we spent more than a year moving towards this point. Since all the way back in Mark 8, whenever Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God, from that point, Jesus began telling us, telling them about his impending crucifixion, about his suffering, about his death, and about his resurrection. And so for more than a year, since November of 2020, we have been moving towards this point, and we finally get here, and we're greeted with four words, and they crucified him. Now, I've told you many times that this is at least in part because Mark doesn't want us to get caught up just in the physical picture and miss the greater spiritual truth that is above and beyond and behind and over all of this. But in addition to this, if we think like a first century reader, they knew what the crucifixion meant. They had seen crucifixions. They didn't need to give all the gaudy details the gory details. They didn't need to unfold it all for them. They knew all too well what a crucifixion meant. They didn't know all too well what a man walking down a road with a cross on his back. They knew what that meant. And the reality is that even for most of us in this room in the 21st century living in Crosby, Texas today, you know more than you need. You've watched the movies. You've maybe read the books. So if what you're looking for is an a complete forensic breakdown of what happened at the crucifixion. I can't offer that to you, but you already know many of these things, that Jesus was stripped and he was laid down upon the cross, reminded yet again that his back was in shreds, reminded yet again that the humiliation that came from being stripped nude before all these gawkers. His arms would have been spread wide and then spikes driven through each of his hands. There was then another peg that was attached to the upright, and Jesus' knees were bent. One foot was placed upon another, and then 
one additional spike was driven through those two feet and into that peg. The soldiers would then be signaled to take some ropes to hoist the cross up, at which point it would come slamming down into the hole that they had prepared for it. It's at that moment that the full weight of Jesus' body would come hanging down upon those nails. Every last ligament and tendon stretched to the max. Comports with the words that David read to us earlier at the Psalm 22:14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. So the pain that shot through Jesus' body in this moment, the pain that ran up his arms, up his legs, and into his, into his brain, it would have filled his mind. We see again why it's so very important that Jesus was sober-minded and alert. He had to fight off every temptation to sin. He had to fight off every temptation to pull away and to check out. He must call to mind the word of God. He must cling to the promises of his Father. Now, fairly quickly, the lack of oxygen would set up. When your arms are pinned over your head, it's incredibly difficult to breathe. Now, the rational thing to do would be to go ahead and slump down and suffocate and die quickly. But men don't have that in themselves. And so eventually what happens is you put pressure on that spike, you put pressure on your feet, you push yourself up, and you gather a good, decent breath. But then the pain begins to set in. And eventually you slump back down. And you wait for suffocation to set, up, set in again, and then you go back up and up and down and up and down. It continues. Not for hours, typically. Oftentimes for days. There was no mercy. There was no respite from the pain. Truly, this was amongst the most cruel and inhumane forms of death ever devised by man. Now, the Romans didn't invent it. The Persians did. But the Romans perfected it. They had it down, and they used it to great effect people trembled at the thought of the cross and most common in most decent societies decent circles you didn't talk about the crucifixion you didn't celebrate the crucifixion again I say to you it is absolutely mind-blowing that a people would devote themselves to glorifying and worshiping and celebrating a man that died a humiliating and shame-filled and painful death like this and so what we have to ask ourselves is why did Jesus have to die like this why did Jesus have to die in shame and excruciating pain? Of course, the immediate answer is because it had been written. God had decreed it. The prophets had foretold it. Jesus had predicted it. And so it had to happen. But why this way? Why did they have to decree that it happens in this way? Listen, we know why Jesus could not die as a baby. We know that if he had died as a child, he would not have been able to fulfill all righteousness. And therefore, while we may have been cleansed of our sin, while we may have been found innocent before God, we would not be able to enjoy all the blessings that he has for those that fulfill his law, for those that uphold his perfect righteousness. And so we, we acknowledge the fact that Jesus couldn't die as a baby. He had to live to this point to fulfill all righteousness. But why this style of death? Why couldn't he die in his bed at 30 or 75 years old? Why couldn't he jump on a grenade like a war hero? Why like this? Dear friends, you must know that this is because God desires to show you the horrors of sin. God wants you to see the weight and the hatred that he has for sin. As his son was pierced for our transgressions, as he was crushed for our iniquities, 
as he took our sin upon himself and nailed it to that cross, as he became a curse for us, God is showing us this is the reality of your rebellion. Look at it. You cannot see the fullness of my wrath poured out upon my my son's soul. You can hear his cries. You can see the cosmic signs and the tearing of the veil and all the others. You can imagine it in your mind, but you can't see it, but you can see this. You can watch me crush his body. You can, watch the torment, you can watch the torment that is poured out upon him in these moments. You can see this. See and understand. You have not merely broken some impersonal cosmic law. You have not just transgressed the proper order of the universe. You have rebelled. You have hated me. You have thumbed your nose and rejected the rule of the only rightful king of the universe. And this is the weight. At this moment, more than the flood, more than the destruction of any Canaanite nation, in this moment, you see God's hatred for sin, his wrath for sinners, more than at any other time before or after. It is all right here. The wrath of God in display, on display in the crushing of his son. Now, church, I understand this isn't easy to listen to. I understand that if we just stop right there, that there's many of you that are, or, or perhaps if you just think I'm exaggerating and you think I talk about this every week, there will be some of you that are going to leave this place and you're going to say, that is the darkest and most depressing thing I've ever heard. Where's the hope and where's the joy? Look, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that my sin is detestable to God and I don't need you to remind me every single week. Fair enough. I suppose the first thing I would say is, then why do you still play with sin? Why do I still play with sin? Because clearly I don't get it. I'm not talking about unintentional sin. I'm not even talking about the sin I struggle against. I'm talking about the sin I revel in. Let me go ahead and tell you a secret, church. I sinned intentionally this week. I've repented of that sin. I'm ashamed of that sin, but I can't stand before you and say I'm truly battling all my sin. I can't stand here and say, well, no, no man's perfect, but look, I hate my sin the way God hates my sin. It's just in my fullness, I can't get there. No, friends, there are times when I sin and I like it. So apparently, no, apparently, no, I don't get it. Maybe all of you do. Maybe I'm the problem here. Maybe that is the problem. But beyond this, if you don't come to this point, If you don't come to this point to see the depth of sin, to see God's hatred for sin, you will never find the hope and joy that's on the backside. If you love your sin, if you celebrate your sin, if you minimize your sin, then of course you don't find joy in what comes next. So what happens very often is people that believe I talk about the wrath or that we talk about the wrath of God too often, they will quote one particular verse from the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 33:11 as I live declares the Lord I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Praise God. These are words from the mouth of the God of the universe. And I praise him for them because I was counted as the wicked. I praise God that he does not delight in crushing the wicked. He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, but we must never get it twisted into believing that God is somehow reluctant to crush the wicked. 
We must be reminded that when we get to the end of this book and we see in Revelation his son riding in to make war. As the earth runs full with blood. As he crushes those who have been found dead in their sins. That there is a roar that goes up from heaven as the saints and the holy angels cry out, Holy, 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 we praise you God. The reason that the wrath of God causes me to have this compulsion, this response that I have is because I don't see sin and I don't see God the way that they really are. And yet I praise him that he does not delight, that he does not find pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. But we've got to ask the question, how could he afford to do anything but destroy them? The thing that God cherishes most in all the universe is his name. And sin at its very root is the rejection of the glory of God. It's the embracing of other things, lesser things, and putting them as greater than the greatest thing in all the universe, the name of God. How then can he simply ignore these things? How can he simply pass over these things? How can he bring anything other than death and destruction to wicked men? Well, dear friends, the answer is found in Isaiah 53. We read it every time we take communion together. Because what we find in Isaiah 53.10 is that while God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, we find that it was the will of God to crush him. That he, that is God, has put him to grief. The word for will here, it's pleasure or delight or desire. It pleased Yahweh to crush his son. You understand what I'm saying to you? He takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but it pleased him to crush his perfect and righteous and blessed and beloved son. How can it be? Dear friends, this is the gospel. This is hope. This is joy. This is love. This was God's will. From all eternity, no one forced him to do this. Listen, God could have made man incapable of sinning. God could have destroyed all sinful men. He would have been right and just to do it. And yet driven by a zeal for his own glory, a desire to display the fullness of all his attributes, as we read in Ephesians 1, according to his good pleasure, in the adoption, in the forgiving, in the making perfect of men, that they would be his people. God took the sins of men, the sins of the wicked, and they laid, him upon, they laid them upon his son. The sins of the Old Testament saints from generations past, the sins of New Testament saints that had not yet happened, they took them all and he placed them upon his son. His son willingly came to receive them upon himself so that God might bring his just punishment upon sin and lavish immeasurable love upon unlovable men. It pleased the Lord to crush him. God wasn't just watching in horror. God wasn't watching in confusion. God wasn't making lemonade out of lemons. It pleased the Lord to crush him. This was his will. This was his plan. This was his plan from eternity past. The land that was slain before the foundation of the world had come, and now in time, at the appointed time, he crushed him. 
because he could not be glorified. He could not be the just and righteous and holy judge if he continued to pass over the sins of men without punishing them. He could not then turn his back on those sins and love us unless someone bore his wrath. Dear friends, you cannot know the love of God unless you reckon with his wrath. This is the incredible danger in taking the love of God and breaking it out as if it was the supreme attribute, the trump attribute, that one attribute that has nothing to do with all the others. That's not the picture we see in Scripture. This is the beauty and the necessity of the cross. This is the love of the cross. This is the hope of the cross. Because otherwise what you have is needless suffering and inexplicable evil. The cross is meaningless unless it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. And that's why we call it Good Friday. Because God was bringing together in this place, at this time, the ultimate picture, his glory like we had never seen it. Remember, God's glory, again, it's just the sum of his perfections. It's the sum of his beauty. It's all that God is in his majesty, in his weight, in his worth, in his beauty. This is the glory of God. Again, I say the thing that he cherishes more than anything else, and he displays it all here. His holiness and his mercy, his righteous and his grace, his wrath and his love, all coming together perfectly in the bruised and beaten and crushed body of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the cross. That's the gospel. That's our ultimate hope. Dear friends, I wish I could sing. How could I ever be separated from love such as this? And they divided his garments among them and cast lots for them to decide which each should take. So this is a clear fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen that David read earlier. And as best we can tell, most men living at that time, including Jesus, they would have had five garments. They would have had one, something for their head. They would have had sandals for their feet. They would have had an outer garment. They would have had a belt of some type. And then they would have had an inner garment or a tunic. So John tells us that there were four soldiers, and so it's easy to divide up the, the four garments, but when they came to the tunic, it was a seamless garment. And so they thought, well, rather than just tearing this thing apart and using it just for scraps, we will cast lots to determine who gets what and who gets the tunic. Obviously a clear fulfillment of, of prophecy. The reason why they had to put Jesus' own clothes back on him was to fulfill this prophecy. Now as best I can tell, this was the sum total of Jesus' earthly possessions. He had no home. He had no donkey. He had no money. This is the sum of everything that Jesus had. Now these men, they gambled for it. Truly, he who was rich became poor. But I left out part of that verse, haven't I? Because what the scripture actually says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 is, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich believer everything is wrapped up in the for your sake in the words of Alistair Begg a rich man becoming poor is just a tragedy it's just a sad story for a rich man to become poor but it is immeasurable love that he would become poor that you may become rich 
And it was the third hour when they crucified him. That means that it was 9 a.m. This whole thing has happened very, very quickly. If you think about it, having a long time in here, but in real time, this thing was moving fast. Verse 26, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now this is beautiful, and I wish I'd left more time to unpack this. This is beautiful. This is high-level smack talk that's happening right here. Whenever you charge someone, whenever somebody was carried out to the crucifixion, you took the charge, you wrote it on a placard of some kind, and either somebody walked behind the man carrying it on a stick, or maybe you would put it around the man's neck, and then you would hang it from the cross. And so it tells us here, Mark tells us that Pilate writes of Jesus, the king of the Jews. Matthew tells us that it reads, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then John tells us that it says, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. This is Jesus, the Nazarene the king of the Jews. Now John also tells us that the chief priests come to Pilate and they say, don't write king of the Jews. Right? This man said that he was king of the Jews. They rejected Jesus as the king of the Jews. They didn't like the fact that there was some official document, some official placard that's going out before that says this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And guess how much Pilate cared? He was done, man. Y'all forced me into this. I didn't want to get involved in this. I wanted to beat the man and let him go. Y'all forced me into this. I'm done with you Nimrods. And so what he says is, what I have written, I have written. Deal with it. I'm done. We're not talking about this anymore. King of the Jews, that's what it says. One last stab at the Sanhedrin. Now we know just how true this statement is. And yet we know how far short it falls. We know that Jesus is not just king of the Jews. We know that his his kingdom is not just in heaven. We know that all power and all authority and all dominion has been given to him. That every earthly king and magistrate and ruler, they answer to him. They will answer to him. And while he rules today in the hearts and lives of his people, the day will come when he will ride in and he will claim the rest of that which is his, that which belongs to him now. We know that on that day, men will not just be there, bow their knee and say, here comes the king of the Jews. They will bow their knee and they will say, here comes king of all. Difference, he didn't stay poor. Everyone won. Everyone won. And with him they crucified two robbers, one at his right and one at his left. Do you remember the request of James and John's mother? I mean, it, it, you get a mixed signal, right? In, in one story, it, it, you kind of see them coming, but then the other, you realize they sent their mommy because they were afraid. But she says, say to these two sons of mine that they are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus tells them, you have no idea what you're asking. I wonder if they'd know now. As they see Jesus strung up between these two violent criminals. It says that they were robbers. These weren't pickpockets. These weren't people that were, that were shoplifting. These were violent insurrectionists. We talk about this back when Barabbas was released. These were violent men. Now, if you, if you read a newer translation, I think we have time for this, but if you read a newer translation of God's word, you're gonna find that verse 28 is either missing or in brackets. We've talked about this a number of times as we've worked through Mark's gospel. And what I've tried to reassure you, what I've tried to show you is that because of these variants, because of their acknowledgement of these variants, we can have greater confidence in the word that we hold in our hands than ever before. Because these men are so committed to bringing us the true word of God that when they find older or more reliable manuscripts, they come right back to the body and they say, hey, I think we need to revisit this. This might not have been in the autograph. But, just as with every other one of the variants that we've explored, it doesn't change the meaning of the text at all, and it's a word that's referenced in one of the other Gospels. 
What we find is that the words that were originally written there in verse, maybe not originally, I'm sorry, in earlier translations were written there in verse 28. It's actually a quote from Isaiah 53. It's at the very end of Isaiah 53. These same words are in fact written in Luke 22. He writes it in his gospel. So in the very last verse of Isaiah 53, we read these words, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered. He was counted. He was reckoned. He was treated and thought of as a transgressor. Dear friends, we must remember that when Jesus came, if we're not careful, we can have this feeling like, oh, look, Jesus came and he was with the sinners. Jesus came and he was with the poor. Jesus came and he was with the sick. And then at nighttime, he went back to some castle. He lived with them. He did life with them. He suffered with them. He wept with them. He lived like one of them. So we see him here, numbered, counted, reckoned as a transgressor. But then Isaiah goes on to say, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Difference, we will end here because this is the hope. This is the hope. If what Jesus purchased at the cross was your salvation and then he wiped his hand and said, good luck, don't mess it up, we're in trouble. We're in deep, deep trouble. And yet what we find is that even now, even as he is raised in glory, even as he ascended to the right hand of his father, even now he is interceding for us. Intercession is just a fancy word that Jesus is representing us in prayer. We see this picture when he speaks up on behalf of Peter. You remember that? He came to Peter and he tells Peter three times, you'll deny me. And of course, Peter being cocky as he is says, no, it'll never happen. But what Jesus says to him is this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. This is the picture of intercession that Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Because of all that he is and all that he has done, the Father will never turn away this intercession. He will not reject this intercession. He is praying for our forgiveness. He is praying for our strengthening. He is praying that our faith may not fail. This is why he would say in John 6, that I've come to do the will of him who sent me, and his will is that of all he has given me, I will lose none but raise them up on the last day. Dear friends, this is why you won't be lost. This is why you are held fast because he is interceding even now that your faith may not fail. Dear friends, you understand the beauty of this. We don't just look to the cross and say, well, good, Jesus' work is done. No, he's a high priest today because of the perfect sacrifice of his life. He is before the Father right now interceding for you based on the perfection of his person, based on the completion of his work, based on his standing with God, that he would take that and say, Father, let their faith not fail. Let them endure to the end. Do not allow their sins to ensnare them. Dear friends, this is your hope. This is your joy. This is the love of God on display. I pray that you see this. I pray if you don't. Listen, I get it. It doesn't hit everybody the same way. I pray if you don't. You go, what's this guy's problem? Sin, sin, sin. Every week, sin. Let's talk about it. Come sit with me and we will talk about it. I want to show you the joy of Christ. I want to show you the hope that is found in him. I want to show you the love of God. Without that bad news, the good news will be meaningless. Dear children, all that I've said to you will be of no avail if you do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ. If you're already joined with him, then I call you today to continue repenting and continue believing until your very last breath. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you that he meant it when he cried out, it is finished. That there is no condemnation left for us. No destruction, no punishment. We thank you, Father, that he now sits at your right hand and he intercedes on our behalf, that he is praying even now for this gathering, for this people. And Father, that you will be faithful to carry us to the end, that we will not be lost, that our faith may not fail. Father, we praise you for all of this. We seek to glorify you in light of it now. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.